Hi, I'm Cornell. I'm Glenroy. And I'm Kareem. And welcome to the 50 podcast where three hair whipping, heel strutting Jamaican queens talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean. See, I have no idea what I'm, it still hasn't shown up, so we're going to have to do this again. <laughs> Life in the diaspora and work takes <laughs> I mean, it's all the white noise. <laughs> you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. One, two, three. <laughs> Bottoms up. You know what? Thank you for having my back, Karim, because the internet is just like not agreeing with me today. So, no problem. to that. How are we going to do it over? We're keeping that. How are we doing it over? No, let's do it. Let's proceed. Full speed ahead. <laughs> How was your week? Um, I've been home, uh, so there, that, that's been it. However, just following a lot of the conversations that's been happening online, like recently we're having this very interesting conversation about the constitutional validity of some of the actions that have been taking under the states of emergency. So I've been following and participating in that. But my dear man, I do the work. Friday, we have one bag of Zoom meeting, so Zoom tired for some of face. So, you know, that's just that on that. But um, interestingly enough, my mom went to the country today to kind of visit my great-grandmother to kind of ensure that she's all right, given that she lives in the country by herself for the most part. Um, but yeah, just, just I mean, uh, that's, I think that's all we've all been doing, just, you know, been at home. Mm-hmm. Kareem? It's been a weird week. I mean, we're home, but everybody knows I live in America where it's, I don't know. <laughs> as Dr. Skye said, America is. And as such, things have just been like, I don't know, it feels like stuff is just falling apart. I've heard of at least like five deaths this week. Um, not related to me, but to people that I know and are close to who have experienced some COVID-related, some non-COVID-related. So it's kind of like very gloomy. But for the most part, I'm trying to hang in there. I'm trying not to become overcome and over overwhelmed by all of this. And I need to keep up because Lord knows tomorrow's class, I have not prepared anything nor have I posted anything. So right after this, never post the people in lecture so then we don't lose the look arc. Once to you, Carnell, what's going on? I mean, also at home, I have no idea what day it is, which is fine because I have nowhere to be right now. Um, it feels like a perpetual weekend. <laughs> pres- yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I guess there, there, there's still things that need to do, but I've been doing a bit of, not a bit, a, quite a bit of cooking, actually. So, Mance has been making oxtail and we had pig steel the other day. Um, I am very proud to say that I made banana porridge by myself for the first time. So that's been pretty exciting. But yeah, we've just been generally experimenting with uh, recipes and such. I don't know if any of you are on this train yet, but if you have Netflix, you need to check out Tiger King. It is absolutely wild while white people are not okay, but it's absolute high drama entertainment if you need a distraction right now. So would recommend. Oh, man, I catch up on all of my old Netflix shows. So, I mean, I watch Titans, and I forgot to watch Black Lightning. I've seen people talk about it, but I haven't, like, looked about looked on it to see what it's about. And I mean, like, I, there's a whole backlog of Netflix for me to catch up on. So, but me, me look into it. What's it about? So, it's this, it's supposed to be a documentary, but it, it was, it was started off as something that turned into something else. So, it's about this group of people, primarily this guy called Joe Exotic, who runs this, like, wild animal exotic farm thing um so apparently there are more captive tigers in the u.s than there are in the wild in the entire world which is mind-blowing but then each like with each episode you think it can't get any worse and then it absolutely does so you have this the main i guess character or person because it's like a real story i guess is being sued by this animal rights lady he is he turns out to be this like polygamist gay man who uses a lot of drugs i don't know it's 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 an it's a thrill i i'll i'll say that much but it's it's a good entertainment because you think this can't be real life and it completely is so that's not so unbelievable because America people are really different. Mm. And just to let you know, Corner is not pig's tail, it's, it's just pig's tail. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it is the tail of the pig, so pig's tail. So I'm gonna stay yeah, in the yeah, yeah, We're really not gonna do this. Just like, oh, you did not call them dumplings? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and spinners. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Why they the man a teacher for cook? Make him teacher over talk to. <laughs> wow, rude, rude. In any case, what are we doing today, Glenroy? 
you could give a little time for laugh somewhere. Anywho, so today, I mean, given the trend that we've been focusing on health over the this the past week and now today, we're talking about access to healthcare services for members of the LGBT community. And we're going to be focusing on Jamaica, but I mean, some of what we're talking about is obviously applicable to other um, communities both, um, in the diaspora and in the Caribbean. So. Um, should be a lively discussion. I mean, full disclosure, this has been a part of my work um, as an advocate for quite some time. So there is that. But fortunate for us, because we have two very special guests with us, with us here today. We have Dr. Nicholas Skyers, who is the director of the Health Promotion and Protection Branch of the Ministry of Health and Wellness. Was that right? Director in. Director in. Right. Yes, thanks. So she's the director in the Health Promotion and Protection Branch at the Ministry of Health and Wellness. And we also have with us my very own sister, Kimberly. It's really Kim, but I like her, Kimberly. <laughs> Kim Foster, who used to work with us for a short time at JFly, but also participated in a mystery shopping exercise we did within healthcare facilities. So she was kind of directly able to go in, um, access these services at different facilities and see what the response was like um, for her as an openly trans woman in Jamaica. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty of the perspectives from both the government perspective and the perspective of members of the community and their lived experiences. So I'm excited. I'm ready. I'm glad to say the one could have rushed out for me. I'm glad for there. Yeah, it's good. Um, Woo, we never welcome them. Woo! Woo! <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me or having us, rather. Oh, happy to be here. Okay. So, Cornell, you want to start us off with the questioning? Sure. So, uh, Glenroy kind of, you know, gave a summary of what we were trying to do, but it's really about trying to get a sense of what are some of the resources, if any, or get a landscape, if you will, of the kind of, you know, experiences that people had in terms of the healthcare system in Jamaica. So the first question is, what resources currently exist within the services offered by the public health system to address the specific sexual health needs of LGBT people? Okay, so hi everyone, thanks again for having me. That area is an area that is currently under-resourced, I would say, and it's it's a long-standing challenge in the sense that the way how the health system developed over the decades, I would say, there has been very little attention to the health or sexual health needs of LGBT persons. And it's traditional in the sense that it's not taught in medical school, it's not taught in nursing school, it's not taught anywhere. And therefore, the instances in which we have done any work in this area has really found its genesis within the HIV program, which um, has taken the conversation to a point and we really need to take it to the other level, but we'll come to that at a later time. So given that structure, what has happened is that the service providers who provide HIV care, their capacity capacity has been built over the years to provide SRA services for LGBT persons. So there has been a long-standing partnership that the ministry through the HIV unit has had with Equality for All. And in more recent times, we have been working with ITEC, which is an agency of PEPFAR, which has really been building the capacity of service providers to provide care. But as I said, it's, it's not on the scale that it needs to be and there certainly has to be a lot more advocacy from the community to see how we engage with the with government and the ministry of health to understand that these are things that need to be integrated into our service provision mechanism so really and truly the work that's done is really led by the hiv unit but we need to take it to 2.0 now having a general service for lgbt persons sorry just a quick uh i want a clarification on i i think you said something about sr AIDS. I'm not sure if I heard the, the word oh, right, but what is, what is that exactly? Sorry, sexual and reproductive health. I apologize. Ah. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Acronyms. I'm sorry. Um, so Dr. Skies, maybe it would be useful as well for you to kind of take us through very briefly like, where we've come from 
because I mean, I know that through your, the partnership between the ministry and equality that it's a good nine years of, a pro, of that kind of a partnership and probably a little, bit, a little bit longer. So perhaps you could talk about what was there before and where we have come and then we can push it towards more of, as we go further down, where we need to go. Sure. So earlier on in the, in the response, the, there was a very, let me call it, didactic chalk chalk and board conversation around S&D. So you'd have somebody speaking to you, oh, you must not, you know, mustn't stigmatize, you mustn't discriminate, and everybody gets 100% on the test. And you go back to your facility and you continue with your usual activities. So none of that type that none of that methodology was really translating into any change. However, with the partnership, the decade-long partnership with Equality for All, a different methodology was used where we had members of the LGBT community actually conducting trainings with our healthcare workers. It was also more comprehensive in that you would try to get, if you weren't able to get all from a particular facility, at least representatives from each area. So you try to get the security guard, the cleaner, the nurse, the doctor, all persons at the facility. And there were persons that are taken through a series of sessions. So you may have three or four one-week sessions where there is actually that interface with the community. And that has, even the evaluations that have been done, that has been invaluable in terms of persons just understanding their own perspectives and how it is that they're how they, their interaction with the population actually promotes or inhibits the engagement of LGBT persons with the healthcare system. So that methodology has proven to be a, a best practice, and you all need to write it up, Benoit. It has proven to be a best practice where we have members of the community engaging with our healthcare providers, and that certainly has helped. And I think contribute to what Kim might be talking about in terms of the reductions that we have seen in instances and the comfort of the population in accessing public health services. So it has been a really, that shift in the dial in terms of how we engage, instead of it just being a PowerPoint presentation, that engagement with the population over a few days, over, you know, to, over three or four series of interactions has really helped to, to bring the sensitization that was necessary for our healthcare providers. That is mainly how it has been done over the last decade. Yeah, thanks for that. And I mean, just to quickly speak from the perspective of an implementer of like a part of our health project, after a while we had recognized the impact of having people in the room answering questions, talking about their experiences, and then we standardized it across the board. And trust me, it's one thing when you are giving a presentation about human rights. It's a whole other thing when someone is sitting down and just asking you about stereotypes of being queer. And then it changes the dynamic. It, when people ask, for example, about your relationships and how they work and the kind of experiences, when you knew you were queer, how did you come to that identity of self? You know, Kim, you have done some trains, you've done some of that, so you can also jump in and talk about it. It changes how they begin to think of you as a person. You want to... Yeah, because just measuring from what, you know, or experiences have been, it's always rough on the first day. Yeah. On the first day, they completely, they, they, they don't know how to agree with how we identify. Mm-hmm. They are lost in how we do things, the way how we do things, not not necessarily aligning to the gender or sex you were assigned with at birth, mm-hmm. how you have come to it, how you have survived all of that. Mm-hmm. They want to know especially where you come from, if people are accepting of you and they aren't, mm-hmm. or more tolerate, you know, tolerating of you and, and they, we aren't. But then on day two and day three, they start to see us just through hours of just sitting in a room, mm-hmm. not necessarily train, just existing together. We have breakfast together, then lunch together, then mm-hmm. dinner together. And then on day two, it's like, well, maybe Kim is first and foremost human and that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. And then it gets easier and we just get into normal conversations. We see each other on the final day. Hi, morning. I'm going to miss you today. Here's my number. Keep in contact. Sorry for what happened on day one. (laughs) And so... really good it's just really good to be a part of the whole experience yeah can i just uh, ask a oh sorry go ahead mama you can continue i never really have a quick there oh oh no I, I was just curious uh because so 
Dr. Iskaya has provided this really kind of like useful picture of some of the work that has been done previously. And I know you began by saying that uh, Kim participated in that project with the mystery shoppers. I don't know if you want to get into that now, but in terms of this, because I mean, Dr. Iskaya has talked about the, or gestured to the different people that potential patients might encounter on the way to seeking care. So the point about the, the security guard or the, the receptionist or like different kinds of uh, frontline workers. And I'm curious, in addition to kind of like thinking about how healthcare providers specifically are treating you know lgbtq patients what what is i guess resources training like what are the conversations going on among the different points of contact before someone even gets to the to the oh, seeing a doctor so i'm saying for example if i'm going to like a hospital in jamaica um, i'm seeing the security guard at the front i might have to check into someone i might have to fill out particular kind of documents and depending on the experiences i might have with these people i might be more i might be averse to the and the, the whole idea of seeking care. So like, what does that side of things look like in your experience? Who are you asking? Well, I guess either Kim or Dr. Skyer is, I, I mean, based on the, the work in terms of the mystery shopping or, you know, in terms of some of the work that Dr. Skyer is doing. Like, but I'm just wondering if those conversations are happening. Well, bef- well I guess before they interject, to be clear, and Dr. Skyer kind of mentioned it, is that the trainings that we're talking about do also specifically include who we call frontline workers, right. security guards, the intake clerks, or the administrators. They are trained as well because we recognize that potential impact and you know Kim and Dr. Skies can also jump in as well. Yes, because one of the things that we also track within the ministry is the complaints that we're getting. And really the the complaints are usually levied at the frontline workers. So that was recognized as a gap and as such we needed to ensure that we are engaging the security guards, the registration clerks, health records to ensure that that preliminary process is as smooth as possible because there's not usually any issues in terms of interaction with the healthcare workers. It's, it's that process of getting to the nurse or the doctor that that's where the gap usually is. So the trainings were um, shifted to ensure that what we call a whole of facility or a total facility approach so that everybody is sensitized along the process. Right. Uh, and I totally agree with um, Dr. Skies because as for me, going into the facilities, even though you're there and you know you're conducting your research, being a part of the community, it's really your, it's also, you know, your life experience. And most complications comes from the frontline workers. I think the most professional experience or the smooth part of the entire experience throughout the facility is actually getting to the doctor. And it would take a while, I guess, to say, okay, the doctor would be less. And it's actually the truth. Um, the securities, they're, they're, they're lost, but then they, they socialize much with whosoever are coming in. And so they, they have the same perception as the outside or even the waiting area that's that, that section is a little bit rough as well because then you're dealing with all the patients who are waiting just as how you're waiting and and it's a small space oftentimes it's a small space and so you 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 hear the talks but when the nurse when you get to the nurse they'll say they've heard it too if they hear it and they say okay not to worry because you're here for a reason and then they start to reassure you and comfort you and some nurses just for your own safety and to see how vulnerable you are in some situations they would say i will allow you to go and see the doctor right away and have you waited long. and so perhaps the frontline workers need extra focus but we we do well with the whole facility approach mm-hmm. and i think you know just as you mentioned that kim i've know i've heard reports where you know it's really the other clients who are in the space who are sometimes perpetrating these acts of discrimination. And really it comes back to that, how do we continue to work with the society mm-hmm. you know, to reduce this kind of, um, these, these instances where you're, you're getting security guard is okay getting in and then you're sitting waiting for care. And then it's our fellow citizens who are engaging in these negative practices. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and sometimes the situations, you know, they grow out of control. And so the securities don't know how to respond. And sometimes as LGBT people, we think they're not taking our side or we feel as if we are left more vulnerable or more unsafe. Um, but then it's a hundred people telling them that we are not allowed to use the space versus them saying that we should be allowed to use the space. Yeah. So the, I get the pressure and it's a real thing for them to deal with as well. And so it's necessary that we as the community, you know, we are patient with people who, you know, try to at least give us that space where we're not just put first or last, but we're dealt with, we're dealt with equally. Um, and so 
the security is there, please. I think them and the, the, the not just the clerks, the, the security, the clerks, and also the auxiliary staff, mm-hmm. they face the most pressure from clients who are also in the space. And so, you know, and they keep their jobs a very long time. You see the same auxiliary staff working in the hospital when you were a child, if you right. use the same hospitals. And so most of the clients will know them from, you know, prior or prior experience. Do you have any questions or thoughts, Kareem? Oh, yeah. Well, I was um, saying that the, the work of kind of highlighting our shared humanity is so important on so many different levels. And I was wondering if anybody would care to speak a little bit more. I know Kim kind of gave us a good overview of what those trainings look like. If we could talk some more about, um, I don't know, I'm curious as to like just what a day in those trainings look like, like who's in, well, we know who's involved, but just kind of just what they look like and the availability of these trainings now. Well, to, yeah. since- well, they never invited me to any, so I can't. <laughs> so I don't know who's gonna respond to that. But well, you can't talk, but you don't need a training, Doctor Scans. <laughs> you don't need a training. You should have. You probably should have conducted some. You don't need a training. But so what they look like is so we've done different types. We've done some two days. So they're residential trainings. So we take all of the workers outside of their, their original workspace environment. We go to a hotel and we spend like three, two to three days of intensive training. So they go through conversations about their own value systems, try to reconcile that understanding what is being asked of them is not to change their value systems, but to kind of appreciate that there are other people with other value systems and that those two must be able to, to peacefully coexist. And that then we talk to them about like human rights and their role as healthcare providers to respect the rights of others and what that looks like. Um, and they're very interactive. So they create scenarios, um, whether it is about human rights, whether it's about their values. There's, there's a, in one of the days, we also look at like stereotypes about the community and what they believe and do not believe and have conversation to work through those stereotypes. And then standard of care, we are um, closer to when I started working at JFLAG, we were our equality now. But yeah, closer to when I started working there, we were also mainstreaming trans healthcare. So that was about getting people to understand trans people's identities, getting people to understand what trans healthcare looks like. And that even though we don't have it, this is what, this is what trans people are interested in accessing. Talk to them about the policy framework. And there's one thing, and also gender and sexual diversity generally. So we use stuff like the gender-bred person to kind of get them to understand gender and sexuality as a spectrum so that they can appreciate that what we're presenting is not aberrations or we're not presenting people who are something different than human but that we exist on this spectrum of diversity and that just as the heterosexual people exist queer people exist so yeah it's it's about so it's a lot of all of that and then if it's like a two-part training where we come back we give them something to present to their fellow co-workers um, so that they can kind of understand what it's like to be in our position and then they would come back and tell us what that was like and we give them more practical tools. And my favorite part of the training though is always, and we were talking about this, is the panel. So, so we do a panel of members of the community. Sometimes it's us talking in our personal, as ourselves, as queer people, but more what we try to do more often than not is get members of the community to join us. So you don't say, oh, it's just the JFly people talking to you. So you have them also talk about their personal experiences with, and we try to give a mix. So there's usually a gay man, a lesbian, a bisexual woman, and a trans person talking about those different types of experiences. And more often than not, the person who gets most of the questions is a trans person because of the, the absence of information about it. But yeah, that's what that training is like. Oh, and is there any like, type of follow-up or follow-up to tell the effectiveness of the training or that's not really in your wheelhouse? So there is so there are site visits that we do um and that's what the mystery shopping was about and and so i'm just going to give an overview and Kim can talk about it a little or expound on what that, that whole experience was so the idea of the mystery shopping because we recognize more organizations were also doing trainings and so it wasn't necessary for us to continue to do that part of it we wanted to see what were the benefits of those trainings so outside of the the trainings that had two-part follow-ups so, for example, you had one training that you do three days, you go back and then you come back and talk about it. And that would be the follow up. We wanted to see what was it like in the facilities. And so we did. We said, OK, let's do some mystery shopping. And so we trained some, some members of the community and CISET allies to go into the facilities and do that kind of assessment. And then we produced a report about it. So come through, Kim. <laughs> 
so so we we were we were asked to visit facilities not just those that were close to home or in our vicinities but we also left the parish and we visited different centers that we would be most unfamiliar with or unfamiliar to and so for me those visits they mattered the most because i felt as if, if if you really don't know me then you'll be giving me the most authentic care based on just how you're treating me in that moment. The mystery shoppers were persons from the community who represented, you know, different different areas on the, on the spectrum. And so it wasn't just members of the trans community, there was also gay men and also bisexual people. But what we realized is that, as Dr. Sky has mentioned earlier, there has been a massive reduction in how things were for us then and how we were, how we were used to things and how things are now. And it comes on to what we were talking about earlier, I think most of our negative experiences are coming from the frontline workers. When you get into a space where you least expect it, you might see a material that's speaking about trans health, even though it's not provided. You might see a leader or an advocate from the community who advocates for public health or just sexual and reproductive health of the LGBT community. And you might see a promotional material there. And they're just small, small cues. You might, you might get into the office and the doctor or the nurse will tell you, be comfortable. They understand. They might even ask you your pronouns and so we realized that things are becoming more forward as the conversations are happening and as the trainings are happening and what I appreciated the most from my experience was the reflections that came in the report. So, you know, the, this was like the super national broadcast of the final results of how, you know, LGBT persons were being treated based on these experiences and based on these, you know, Mr. Shoppers um, conducting survey. For me personally, I felt it was risky. I endured, you know, my own, <laughs> my own, let's just say there was a wide range of stigma and discrimination in some facilities, mm-hmm. but I managed to endure it. So I came out safe, which I appreciated. But also, I felt as if most of the facilities now are doing their best to keep my group of people safe. And that's what I appreciated the most. And so we make recommendations. And so I think those who are more forward, those facilities are being heavily used by the population here. And we are just waiting to see the growth in other facilities in other parishes since most of the positive responses were, you know, between Kingston and St. Andrew and St. Anne, I believe. So... I look forward to that growth. So yeah. Wow. Okay. So I have a, a bunch of questions if I'm allowed to, to ask them and bear with me. Uh, so in terms of the, the trainings that you do, um, I know you said that, you know, different uh, people in different kinds of roles are included in the training, but I'm wondering what kind of dialogue happens. So, so I guess the first question would be, are these trainings done like institution by institution or department by department, or do you just have like a collection of people? And I'm asking that because I was at a workshop earlier this year where, you know, the general idea was around this idea of uh, provision of healthcare for Black queer folks and people from in different kinds of like capacities. So like there were nurses, there were people working in community organizations, there were some doctors there, there were like some man- managerial staff as well. And so they really appreciated it because it gave them an opportunity to talk to people that they might not necessarily meet otherwise. And so I'm wondering, are people benefiting from uh, communicating with people that have a different kind of like perspective and how that is helping them to better their own practice? I also have, you know, um, so Dr. Skyers were saying earlier that treatment, like talking about treatment of like LGBTQ people isn't included necessarily in the curriculum for students who are in med school, but it turns out to be the case that generally healthcare providers in that capacity are pretty receptive. And so I'm also wondering, are there conversations about how to incorporate some of these things into the curriculum? And you also said, Dr. Skyers, that the, if, if I heard you correctly, that the program was specifically focusing on um, HIV. HIV. And to Kim's point, I'm curious, I guess, to see or hear how healthcare providers are responding to patients outside of concerns around HIV. Like, I know it's important for the community, but I mean, there, there are like other kinds of questions, not only in terms of sexual health, but like sexual education. And I'm wondering, are, are people able to talk to their doctors about like something as simple as sex even, like, and how to do sex and like risks and like how to protect oneself and all, all of these other kinds of things? Are, are Is that a thing that people are equipped to do? at this point? Well, I'll answer the first question. And then, I mean, Dr. Skyers can talk about that um, 
the last set. But in terms of what the trainings look like in terms of participants, mm-hmm. um, well, I think one, even what we had recognized at certain points is that when we had a mixed crowd, say a doctor and a nurse and, and ad- certain administrators and certain frontline workers, is that certain categories of people would not talk while other categories of people were around. Um, and so the, the, the extent to which people were being honest about their views depended on whether or not persons in their group were in the room. And so we recognized that therefore there was a need to separate training in that way so that we could facilitate very open conversation. And so we had one, there was one specific for medical doctors and then the, the conversation was more tailored for them. And then we had frontline workers, different categories of frontline workers together and we had a, a different kind of conversation with them. Importantly to, to acknowledge though is that within that group though, there, was, there were different people with different backgrounds. So a lot of times in our trainings, you would find without our own intervention, different participants holding each other to account when certain problematic perspectives and biased opinions came up, um, I didn't have to say anything. One other participant would be saying, no, that, that there's something wrong with that. So even among people within the same, whether it is socioeconomic background or professional background, there was still that exchange of ideas and perspectives um, that made it much more beneficial, I believe, for the participants. I think and hope that answers the question you were asking. Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, so I'll I jump in here in terms of um, the actual services that are being offered. So, as I mentioned before, there is no curriculum at this point, and I do know that some work is being done, particularly through TransWave, to have that engagement. Because one of the things, as I mentioned, the HIV program has sort of led the way, but then the program itself is constrained within its own mandate, and therefore that engagement with the other with other units and departments in the Ministry of Health is what I call 2.0, where the persons who actually are planning the health services. So our unit is very disease specific and therefore we can take it to a certain point. So the engagement with what we call health services planning and integration is key in moving this forward. And do know that there were some recent meetings that we need to, that the advocacy and the engagement with the directorate of the ministry to ensure that these matters are brought to the fore so that those decisions can be taken as to how we move forward with designing a trans health program with in the context of what the ministry does. So that is what needs to happen next. And I do know that the conversations took place even as late as in February as to the approach that needs to be taken. Um, our system our system is still very curative oriented. And unless members of the community or any other citizen actually, anybody accessing care, unless they bring up a conversation around sex and sexuality and sexual and reproductive health needs, you know, the provider doesn't naturally engage in those types of conversations. So which again, you know, really looks at how we provide holistic care. So we're very disease specific. Oh, you're here for a cough, but then we're not having that some conversation with you to see what are some of your other issues and needs that also need to be addressed as part of the interface with the healthcare system. So that's a reorientation that needs to take place as well. And it's not limited to the LGBT community. We're very, you know, you're here for a cut with stitch and we send you home. You know, that is the approach we have taken where it's very medically driven. So those conversations around sex and sexuality are not brought to the fore generally. Sometimes they may attempt the conversation with an adolescent who may be coming in for asking for contraceptives or any sexually related matters. But unless you have an issue or you have a matter in that area, the engagement around sex and sexuality is really very limited. And I do know that there is actually an adolescent health unit within the ministry that is working to push that agenda. But then again, it's still very focused on our young people. So that's an area that really needs to be improved where we are looking at persons holistically and therefore even though they are presenting for A, we also ask questions to generate the necessary conversations around B, C and D and provide the service and or be able to refer them to the spaces that they can get any specialist 
care that they need. So that's really a gap in the system. And as I said, it's not limited to the LGBT population. It's just generally how we offer services. Our primary care services are quite overwhelmed. And therefore, sometimes the, the focus is to, you know, really get these 50 patients out of the facility as fast as possible and not, you know, spend as much time as we ought to. So just the whole infrastructure and staffing availability. So sometimes you may only have one physician with 30 patients, you know, how many um, detailed conversations can you really have within that context? So there are structural and infrastructure issues that impact the quality of services, you know, that's really being offered to everybody inclusive of LGBT persons. I think there was another question, but that chat so much I forget. <laughs> no, that was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, that's really eye-opening because I mean I've always looked at this as more like a policy issue for some reason and not necessarily considering the infrastructure and um, all those other components. So thank you for that. Yeah. To be sure, there are policy issues. So <clears throat> for example, the criminalization of um, anal sex makes it difficult for a young gay teen to access information from, for example, healthcare providers. Well, not necessarily healthcare providers, but for example, certain guidance counselors about safe anal sex, for example. So you can't necessarily have that conversation within a criminalizing context per se. I mean, you okay. but you have a broader conversation about safe, se safe sex generally. And so even like anal healthcare, it becomes a trickier conversation to have if you're having it within the context of sexual health as opposed to in our healthcare generally. So there are those limitations. And for example, we don't have a policy framework that supports trans health. So there are those policy issues, but the reality for a lot of LGBT people who are trying to access health, um, the services that they're going for aren't necessarily the things that the policy gaps exist for, even though those exacerbate other issues. No, for sure. Um, yeah, but I was just saying, you know, that I never, I was thinking solely from that standpoint, like it was just a policy issue. But even, I guess even if we fix the policy issue, there is still other components that we that need addressing. But while we are on that, I think that's like the perfect segue into the, um, the other question about transforming policy and culture, especially from a medical standpoint. I'm hoping Dr. Skyers will be able to share with us um, at the policy level, how involved are healthcare workers on the ground um, so that we can ensure policies around providing non-discriminatory services are, are here and implemented. So the, the Ministry of, well, there are a couple of avenues that surround this area around adherence and ensuring that our policies are being implemented. We do have our customer service policy for the Ministry of Health generally and um, persons, the facilities have their charters that they have posted and as to what is what are the rights of the patient as well as the rights of the healthcare workers. So those are the general ones that are in place. Again, just coming back to the genesis of the majority of the work that has been done with LGBT persons is around HIV and within that structure there is the there are technical working groups that look at some of these issues we do have our enabling environment and human rights technical working group where our healthcare providers are part of that conversation and matters are brought into that space that relate to what we call EEHR enabling environment and human rights and some of those matters are filtered back through the system for them to be addressed. There is also the treatment, care, and support technical working group, again, where you have our healthcare providers as part of that system and matters relating to care and those issues around um, stigma and discrimination are also discussed in those spaces. At another level, the ministry also has its client complaint mechanism and matters as persons make the reports there it triggers it triggers a response where the whether at the facility level at the regional 
Child Health Authority level or at the ministry level, an action is taken. So that's the general system. There is also the JAG, what we call JAGS, Jamaica Anti-Discrimination System. I can't remember the entire thing right now. Where it's very, well, it's very HIV oriented, but also pers LGBT persons do make complaints through that mechanism. And what we do within the HIV program itself is that we engage with the Jamaica network of seropositives on a quarterly basis. And we say to them, give me your reports for this quarter that relates to the facilities. And therefore, with as a unit and as a program, we would then engage with that facility, you know, to say, these are the complaints coming out of your facility for this quarter. And we try to work through the issues that would have resulted in that complaint being made as well. So those are some of the mechanisms that we're using to ensure that persons are sticking to the customer service policy that is there. And it's it's part, I think it's part of our 2.0 conversation as well. So we've had these trainings. Yes, we've had some staff turnover, but the majority of the staff, they are there. But how do we encourage members of the community to, to, to I mean, you can lodge your, you need to lodge your complaint. You can also say if something is going well as well, you know, but we're looking at improving the system. So we want to encourage persons to, you know, state your case, lodge your complaint so that we are able to address some of these specific instances. Because as we noted earlier, the, the, the general environment is improving, but we would then still have pockets that we need to address. And if we're not hearing from the community, then we are not able to respond accordingly. So that's one of the things we need to ensure that persons, you know, have their voices heard. This did not go well at this facility. I did not feel comfortable. So we are aware because we do have in our in our unit someone who we call our psychosocial coordinator and he works closely with the persons on the ground to say, hey, this is what has happened. And he takes them through a process to see what are the issues and how we can have them addressed. So generally the ministry has its own customer service policy and then within the program itself we do try to be a little bit more granular and a little bit more timely you know in terms of getting those quarterly reports so that we are able to address the specific instances that pop up over time thank you that was thorough very very thorough so no <laughs> Anyway. So, so I guess for me, although let me give the caveat that what we noticed from the mystery shopping report is that when persons went in for HIV related services or sexual health related services, there was more likely to be persons having issues of, you know, maybe a little stigma or discrimination. But when they went in for just general services, that was not necessarily the experience. And also, depending on how the trans person presented, they were more cis appearing one day. There was they were less like could have issues than if they were more more visibly trans. I guess that's the safest language I can use. But yeah, yeah, I hope that's fine. But yeah, I guess I'm wondering, with that said, since we've done so much work within the context of HIV, what are the barriers to us expanding it to, to talk about a holistic healthcare for LGBT persons? And noting those barriers, where else, how can we then overcome them to get to that point? Yeah, so comes back to the conversation of expanding the dialogue beyond the HIV program and engaging with the, I think at this stage we'd have to engage with the directorate because the engagement at another level is not moving at the pace that we would want it to. So the, the advocacy that needs to come from an equality or trans wave to formally engage and our directorate, they are quite open to the engagement. A formal letter to the ministry, you know, the permanent secretary, minister, you know, usually and facilitates a conversation. And I'm sure equality for all. Every time they write, the minister has, I mean, 
community. So is- no, we, we, there is no barrier in terms of engagement. Therefore, the, the directive or the instruction or whatever the decision is from that discussion can be filtered down to the unit or division that has the responsibility for ensuring that we that they they develop health services so that engagement and as i mentioned earlier there was a meeting in february where that some discussions around that was had but we have to take it to that level at this stage where we engage with the directorate so it's that level of advocacy right now to get that dial moving it's 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 not going to move unless we go to that space at this point in time. So that is where the advocacy needs to continue now to evolve to so that we get the necessary movement. Okay. That needs to happen, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm curious for, um, so thank you for that response, Dr. Skyers. I'm curious to see if Kim has anything to add to that as somebody who is from the LGBT community and had participated in this. Is there anything else that you see that needs to happen for people to do go beyond it's anything that you would like to see happening yeah um i think equality and trans wave they're on the right path um just encouraging the community to just practice you know safer health-seeking behaviors what we just want as a community as a whole is for us to you know get to a place be comfortable having the conversation with health providers on any topic you know inner sex is a real thing <laughs> <laughs> oral sex is a real thing you know and so are stds and stis and hiv and hiv care and treatment they're all real things and, and and the only way that we can you know prevent or treat or protect ourselves is to be fully educated on the issues that we face and so if something is happening or should happen we shouldn't have a scare in talking to it especially to the persons who are there to serve us in treating it if it happens or preventing it from happening and i think the trainings are playing their part i think they are the most efficient part of the trainings is that they're providing results and it's results that the community are very happy for <laughs> and we just look forward to being a part of the process into making sure that more facilities are my other question <laughs> for actually for you Kim okay so while we talk about this the reality is even when you did the mystery shopping report that even if people had a general positive experience they would not recommend they weren't sure they would recommend the facility to other persons and so I guess what I'm wondering is what is it even whether it whether it's whether it's it is from the perspective of health promotion or JFLAG and the work we do with the community, what more do we need to do to assure members of the community that this is a service that you can access? Or is it that just like ordinary Jamaicans, people just prefer to go private and if they can afford it, they will? Yeah, what is it? First thing first, I think people would not recommend the facility if it is that they think that they have survived something that they got lucky with oh. or only if they would be able to survive. Mm. And so, especially with advocates and activists who are in the spaces, they wouldn't recommend it to younger people who are in the community because they don't think that they would survive this type of discrimination or stigma from this specific facility and so even we might come out of you know we we, we do the we get these experiences and we, we come out and we are alive and we are well if it's majority bad we just wouldn't recommend it right next part is i think cornell was a person who mentioned it earlier i think follow-ups are just necessary yeah <laughs> i think um you guys are already doing a good job in being creative and how you get your follow-up results mm. but i don't think that you just need to do more follow so just be more in, just just be present in the space to make sure that things are doing things are going the way how they're supposed to be mm-hmm. uh, because you you can't really help it if you turn your back you know if you if the organization turns turn its back and say I'm gonna lead these people now to get the work done you, you can't control the behavior but if you're present and you're there and you're trying to make sure that this now becomes a routine mm-hmm. and a pattern and it now becomes a habit of people to just serve people as people we will get th- more things out and more things done but so so far so good oh, okay. <laughs> just more follow ups I think I just want to add here as I mentioned earlier just the, the lack of comfort one as well as the lack of documentation on trans health um, we have so many manuals to manage a range of matters in the healthcare system, but there is no trans health document. So therefore, even getting that completed and accepted within the space, and therefore the ministries then, you know, will then roll that training out so that our service providers can become more comfortable. So yes, we have the training and it deals a lot in terms of sensitization and values clarification, but in terms of an actual manual or document that a healthcare provider
provider can actually refer to, you know, in terms of engaging with persons, you know, that that is also a significant gap in the process. And what we find, generally speaking, is that if healthcare workers are not comfortable with the information or they don't have enough information, they will tend to shy away from the conversation. So it's important to get that going where we're able to actually have a document that we can say we can use to train our healthcare workers. So yes, it's complementary in terms of the gender identity and all of those matters that we focus a lot on in the trainings that were done in more recent, but were done. But then you still need to have that clinical management piece so that persons become more familiar with what exactly is required in terms of clinical management and therefore they're better able to engage. Once they have no standard to refer to, that's another area that is, is an issue. So one of the conversations I think we had had with, I think Transwave maybe some time ago was, how do you get a clinician, whether overseas or otherwise, you know, who is working in the area and come and you speak because it's not something that we are very familiar with as a medical community in Jamaica. You may have one or two, could be ignorance on my part, but generally speaking, our providers, whether public or private, are not very comfortable in the area. So how do you then come in to help to build that capacity, which would then translate into persons being more comfortable to offer trans health services? Well, on that point, I just recall that in December, I did meet uh, an, an expert on trans health while I was in Orlando. So we'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry, could I just wanted to... So I'm really grateful for the exchange just now because uh, Kim reminded me of a question that I wanted to, that I forgot to ask earlier. And it was about, um, so you were saying that part of what you had to do during the mystery shopping is that you had to go to areas or communities that weren't familiar to you. And I was, I guess now I'm wondering, because I'm glad I was making a point about access to, to resources. And I'm wondering what that looks like for people who aren't living in places like Kingston or, or Montague Bay. So like what does access to service look like for people who are living in smaller towns or in places where it isn't as... I don't know, densely populated or might not have the same kind of infrastructure. But I also wanted to ask a question. So for let's say we have, you know, listeners who are, I don't know, 16, 18, 21, 23. There are things that I only learned about within the past two or three years that would have been really useful to know from a like a sex education perspective about how to make responsible choices or informed choices even. Um, so things like, you know, I mean, and I know Glenroy was talking about the fact that you you know, doctors can't necessarily counsel people about things like anal sex, but I'm thinking about, you know, conversations about what kind of vaccines might be useful for you to have as, you know, an LGBTQ person, or even, even in the matter of like HIV. I mean, I mean, maybe you could speak more to this because I'm not, I don't really know what the, what things are like around, you know, access to information, but like even conversations around, you know, potential exposure to HIV. Like I only found out about PrEP within the, not, not, not PrEP, PEP, PEP rather, within the past few months. And so if I am, you know, a young person, a young LGBT person in Jamaica, like where would you recommend, where would I go for, to like find resources or like information, like informed, reliable information about how to um, make, you know, proper informed decisions about my own sexual health? Well, before Dr. Skies jump, jumps in and I presume she will, with the young, so you gave three different ages, 16, 18, 21, 23. So we can't really do the 16 because of the legislative framework. So the types of sexual health information that you can give a 16-year-old is not the same. It's the types you can give to the other ages that you mentioned. So that becomes a bit tricky. I know that, for example, there's health and family life information, health and family life education within schools. It's not evenly done through the schools. However, so for example, information about HIV is low among young is getting lower and lower among young people. And we know that's a challenge. And organizations like the Jamaica Youth Advocacy Network are doing work to change that because they focus on sexual and reproductive health and rights broadly. So that's a challenge for young people, just period, because of the different attitudes and the legislative framework around sex and young people and children and them accessing care and accessing information. It's, it's a bit tricky. But for like 18 and above, I mean, outside of like the work that the ministry does, 
through, for example, the National Family Planning Board, the Sexual Health Agency, and they do a lot of work around um, health promotion, sexual health, sexual and reproductive health information sharing and distribution. And then there are a lot of other like organizations that does that kind, that do that kind of work. So, for example, Children's First is one. I know Jamaica Aid Support for Life is one as well. And there are a plethora of others that are that make this information available. And if we're speaking in a queer context specifically, those organizations that I just mentioned, which are civil society organizations, do provide the kind of information tailored in that kind of way for members of the community. So they do a lot of um, community interventions to talk about sexual health. That's one thing we don't lack. Community interventions around sex. We talk about that now. So, I mean, granted, rural penetration might be a different discussion because while not all organizations, not all the organizations are able to get into rural areas to have that conversation, but even through, for example, regional health authorities within the ministry, I mean, I've been a part of conversations through those bodies um, because each of them have beaver change coordinate, beaver change coordinators and teams around beaver change, and they do that kind of information sharing and work as well. So, I mean, Dr. Skies, I don't know if I missed anything that you think, or you have other pertinent information to answer that question. Sure. So, totally agree with you, and really and truly, the the age range that you have spoken to, the youth, you know, they are healthy, and our healthcare system is is not designed or we haven't transitioned to a health promoting approach in the sense that you only go to see your healthcare provider when you're ill. So outside of persons who are children who are going in for their vaccines, really there are no, let me say, preventive visits outside of that space. So once you get to six and you're going to school, you're only going back for your vaccines. And once you get to 12 and get that last shot, you're basically on your own and you're basically healthy. Therefore, there has to be spaces that will be providing that space. Glenora mentioned health and family life education in school, which we do have our challenges with, you know, and, you know, that's a conversation, another setting. But... We do know that there's a lack of comfort in our teachers and guidance counselors to be having certain types of conversations, whether or not they're permitted. Um, that's another thing. So we really have to ensure that the community-based organizations really offer persons this kind of information. We do know the issues around the legislation and really person 16 and over, they're able to consent for care, medical care, so they can get information 16 and up. But then, you know, there are still the attitudes within our spaces, or oh, you're a child, what you need to know about sex for, and all of those, but those are still pertinent conversations within our spaces. So we really rely a lot on our civil society partners. So we need to be able to, how do we get information to persons to drive them to our web? website, you know, to our counselors so that persons can access the information. Because in all fairness, what is offered within the educational system is certainly insufficient and certainly not comprehensive, you know, comprehensive sexuality, sexual education is something that is a sort of a taboo topic within our country at this time. So persons are not getting the information within the formal systems. So yes, we do have our outreach teams that will work within a high-risk community. They will have, they will go to schools and do presentations, but they too are constrained in terms of exactly what they're able to share in those spaces. So we are, you know, we certainly rely on our community partners who have a bit more freedom than the public health system to really ensure that we are creating that environment where young persons can access the information that they need because the legislative environment and the attitudes as well, you know, don't necessarily facilitate that broad conversation that needs to take place around um, health. And as you specifically spoke about vaccines and PEP and PrEP and all of those things, as we get into this, coming back to my point around um, trans health and how therefore in that package of trans health services, you know, that needs to be a part of it. So it's very important for us to get to the policymakers to have those conversations so those things can be built in so that persons 
it can trickle down to that service provider to say, hey, these are the services that need, need to be provided. So it has to be a bottom-up and a top-down approach as well to ensure that we're offering comprehensive care. Thank you. Clearly chatting too much. No, man, no, man. <laughs> They answer them thorough. When you're done, we don't feel like we need to ask nothing else. Right, I was just about to say, <laughs> literally, I'm literally asking. Find something. Find it like I find something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Even Cornell has no questions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Cornell normally comes back with the I have a bunch of questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to work. Yeah, but Glenroy, I'm expecting you guys to come and nudge. Nudge from above. So they can get some movements below. Be there. Good guys. <laughs> I'm Kim. Yeah. <laughs> for sure remember nudging never stop nudging never stop and I know we're having like broader based conversations because I know they're having that ongoing conversation about you know holistic trans care and stuff like that so and I know there are conversations for example about because SRH policy and uh, and I know we're still talking about the, the HIV policy as well so there are all these opportunities to move the needle forward and have the needed conversations so yeah. I do know that you have some strong I, I mean our international partners as well I know that UNAIDS has been trying to engage around the whole trans health program so again you know that's another avenue from which the conversation can also be advanced mm -hmm. definitely all right so thank you to dr skyers and kim for joining us today this was a really informative and productive and generative discussion i certainly i certainly learned a lot hope our listeners did too hope y'all are still staying inside and washing your hands and doing all the things that the, the the government is telling us to do so that Glenroy can have his carnival costume ready for October. Right. <laughs> In the meantime, we're telling you to keep safe, be well, and stay sophisticated.